This episode of Onward to Victory is proudly presented by our pals at West Coast Screen Printing and Embroidery, found at wcscreens.com. Wholesale pricing, nationwide shipping, exemplary customer service, the true trifecta of a dynamic business. And, just like you, they are diehard fans of the Fighting Irish. Head to wcscreens.com. And on with the show. Father William Corby played an integral role in the formative years of the University of Notre Dame and its early development. Even today, his imprint is all over campus, whether it be the residence hall that bears his name. The fact that the main building, or the Golden Dome, was built under his watch as president. Some would even tell you that the athletic team's name of the Fighting Irish is directly attributed to Father Corby's affiliation with the famous Irish Brigade of the Civil War. So let's talk about that ever-so-famous unit and the build-up to the moment honored by a sculpture known as Chaplain Corby of Gettysburg, but is forever immortalized far and wide by a different name, Fair Catch Corby. Buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Onward to victory. We're going inside them. We're going outside them. Inside them, outside them. And we're going to keep them on the run. And when that's the plan, I'm going to try to take a Welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and I am grateful to be with you today. What is today? Why, it's episode 88, and we're going to be talking about one of the people and stories that makes the University of Notre Dame great. To celebrate his 190th birthday this month, I guess we're making it a bit of a party as we are diving into the chaplain of the famous Irish Brigade, two-time president of the university, and the likeness of one of the most famous statues on campus today. We are talking Father William Corby. If you haven't already, please go back and give episode 87 a listen. I was joined by famed Notre Dame journalist Len Clark, and we talked about a myriad of topics, actually. Len speaks passionately and eloquently about the University of Notre Dame and her football program. And I was absolutely grateful, incredibly grateful at that, that he offered some time to Onward to Victory. And I think it's well worth every minute of your time to go back and give that episode a listen. But don't forget that every episode during the 2023 football season is brought to you by our friends at West Coast Screen Printing and Embroidery. If you have needs, our pals at WC Screens, they literally bleed blue and gold. Head over to their website at wcscreens.com to learn more about their exemplary products and services. If you have interest in joining the ranks of the Consensus All-Americans, if you'd like to sh- support the show monetarily, please head over to paypal.me slash onward to victory or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast. Those who have supported the show meaningfully in the past or are currently doing so include Mr. Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey. 
Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, and Mike Johnson of Oak Park, Illinois. Thank you all so very much for keeping the Subway alumni, or for some of you, actual alumni train on the tracks. So to the task at hand, Father William Corby and the Irish Brigade. First, how about uh, a bit about the famous Notre Dame landmark? So resting just in front of Corby Hall is the statue of the aforementioned Father Corby with his hand raised in the act of absolution. Well, he was actually given the nickname of Fair Catch Corby because, yes, it resembles a punt returner throwing his hand up to call for a fair catch, only appropriate for the football-driven university that Notre Dame has become. But the statue itself is called Chaplain Corby at Gettysburg, and it was initially dedicated on May 30th, 1911. It was the highlight of the campus's celebration of Decoration Day, which was what Memorial Day was referred to before about the early 1970s or so. So believe it or not, that 112-year-old statue weighs about 11,000 pounds. In 2018 through 2020, when Corby Hall underwent those major renovations, the statue was moved to its present location afterwards. So it now faces the south as opposed to the east. And that little mulch flower bed with all the landscape that it sits in now is really quite something. But if you haven't seen the Chaplain Corby of Gettysburg statue in person, you simply can't miss it the next time you're on campus. And if campus is inaccessible to you, make sure you head over to Google and check it out. I would be remiss not to mention that the sculpture, which was created by Samuel Murray, there's actually a identical one that sits on the Gettysburg battlefield, which we will talk about here very, very shortly. But let's talk about Father Corby. So Father William Corby himself was born on October 2nd, 1833 in Detroit, Michigan. His father was an Irish immigrant and his mother was actually Canadian. So his father's immigration path actually took him through Canada, where he met his future wife. And as you may have surmised, Yes, indeed, we are talking about some very devout Catholics here. His father, Daniel Corby, was an influential citizen of Detroit, an early influential citizen at that. He was a civil engineer, a property broker, and a construction superintendent. So he helped build many of the Detroit area churches, some of which still stand today. So I went back into the archives a bit to learn a little bit more about Daniel. So this is courtesy of the October 1902 issue of the American Catholic Historical Research, in which they talk a lot about early Catholics in Detroit, particularly about our man, Daniel Corby, when they write, quote, Daniel Corby, one of the original Irish Catholic pioneers of Detroit, become a resident of the city and had invested considerable money in real estate. Desirous of providing a suburban home for himself and his increasing family. The article continues and shows how instrumental Daniel was in securing one of the first resident Catholic priests for the area when it continues, quote, Mr. Corby, seeing the young community of the Catholic settlement yearly increasing, determined to carry his point. Funds were collected. The grounds around the old chapel were improved. A house for the priest was built. 
and a schoolhouse also, in which a young lady of one of the Catholic families was installed as the first teacher. Finally, in 1850, the bishop, having more priests available, saw his way clear to promise a resident pastor for Connors Creek within a year, end quote. So Connors Creek is just there in the Detroit area, but we probably shouldn't be too terribly surprised that then that one of Daniel's sons decided to pursue seminary. Who knows? Maybe he wasn't actually given a choice. I'm kidding, of course, but at any rate, William Corby entered Notre Dame as a student in 1853. So this is exactly 11 years after the school was founded in 1842. So not only was William Corby, Father Corby, soon to be, uh, an early administrator of the university, but he was also one of the early students. But it was less than a year after his arrival that William decided he would commit himself to the religious life. In 1856, he entered the novitiate, and he was ordained four years later in 1860. So just a quick aside, those Corbys seemingly always put their money where their mouths were. William was actually also a landowner in the Detroit area. But upon entering the seminary, he gifted university president, Father Edward Soren, his tract of land in greater Detroit. The plot ended up selling for $6,000, which had to have pleased Father Soren to no end. Don't forget, this is an era when the university still struggled with financial sustainability. As early Notre Dame historian Arthur Hope wrote that, quote, a cynical reader might suppose that young Corby thus paved his way to power under Father Soren. In the light of subsequent history, the suggestion is without any foundation whatsoever, end quote. So Hope is kind of insinuating that perhaps some might have thought that Perhaps Father Corby was angling for a spot on the leadership team of Father Soren. But again, as we would find out, Corby's intentions were very pure. At any rate, Father Soren did, however, take a shining to now Father Corby and made him his prefect of discipline in 1859. Now, this wouldn't have been a very fun job in 1859 because... Notre Dame, though it had a seminary and was an institution of higher learning, in some circles it did have a reputation of where you could send your quote-unquote problem children to get sorted out. So I'm sure as prefect of discipline, Father Corby probably had his hands full. But just two years later, he became the director of the manual labor school and a pastor of a local South Bend church. However, the world had other plans for Father Corby because it wasn't long after his promotion on campus and his prestigious appointment off campus that the American Civil War broke out in 1861. That'd be April of 1861. More specifically, April 12, 1861, when Confederate batteries fired on the federally held Fort Sumter, which was in the Charleston Harbor. Now, I love the fact that I have a Notre Dame football podcast here, but I get to continually talk about the American Civil War. It's just kind of one of my things. But just a few months later, in the fall of 1861, the 28-year-old Father Corby was sent to join another Notre Dame priest named Father James Dillon, who was attached to a group of regiments, the 63rd, the 69th, and the 88th New York Infantry as well as the 29th Massachusetts Infantry. 
Now, these three New York regiments were overwhelmingly Irish. They were quickly dubbed, appropriately and famously, the Irish Brigade. Of note, though, I feel like I had to add this, the Union Army was actually hesitant to have ethnically based units. Because from the onset, it seemed to undermine the notion that they were fighting for, well, a completely desegregated country, an egalitarian society, if you will. However, as Irish Brigade historian Thomas Cragwell notes, the ethnically based Irish Brigade did in fact serve a couple of specific purposes. The first one was quite important, and that was that it sent a subtle warning shot to Britain that there could be consequences if they joined or supported the Confederacy in the conflict, which was something that the Union had to be very mindful of, particularly early on in the war. So what would those consequences be? Well, an American intercession on the side of Ireland against Britain itself. Because, I mean, like, when you look at the Irish Brigade, several of the officers were former Irish revolutionaries who rebelled against Britain. And we're going to talk about one of those guys here in a minute. But the second was also to firm up Irish support for the Union cause in a very, very public way. And for you Civil War buffs out there, and even non-Civil War buffs, so President Lincoln actually had several, for lack of a better term, ethnic appointees. So, for instance, uh, there was a general named Franz Siegel. He was kind of put in a spot of influence and power because a guy like Franz Siegel would have had a lot of sway among the German immigrants. So this was kind of the function of the Irish Brigade. Of course, they would soon have another function, and that was the one of the hardest fighting units in the Union Army, but now I'm jumping ahead of myself. But the Irish Brigade was also perhaps one of the only, or at least one of very few units, to have their own paid chaplains, such as, well, Father Corby. That is, of course, because the unit was overwhelmingly Catholic. So a few notes here on Notre Dame and military chaplaincy. So first, Notre Dame sent a total of seven priests including Fathers Corby and Dillon, to the service of the Union Army. Two of the seven, sadly, never made it home because they died of sickness. But these chaplains stayed incredibly busy. Above and beyond the spiritual guidance they supplied to the soldiers, to which the ranks of Catholic soldiers only grew larger and larger and larger as the war progressed, they also provided counseling, emotional counseling, medical care. They wrote letters for soldiers, especially for many of them who couldn't write or who were illiterate. They read letters. They handled administrative duties. And the list goes on and on and on. Consider this one. In 1862, there were fewer than 30 Catholic chaplains among a total of 500 regiments on duty for the entirety of the Union armies. So think about it. Within a couple more years, there were likely thousands of Union regiments. So these guys were in very, very high demand. And they would have lived the camp life just as a soldier would have. No, they wouldn't have been an active combatant, sure. But they would have marched with the troops. They would have slept with the troops. Uh, there was no special treatment. 
and it was only a couple months after Corby arrived with the Irish Brigade that a certain courageous, charismatic Thomas Francis Marr was appointed to command the entire brigade. He was a regimental commander before that, and then he went back to New York and really set about to recruit an entire brigade of Irish. Now, Marr, this is, again, Thomas Francis Marr, and his last name is spelled M-E-A-G-H-E-R. And I've heard it pronounced a variety of ways, but it looks like meager, but I've always heard it pronounced Marr. But Marr was an Irishman. Surprise, surprise. But he was very active in a movement called the Young Irelanders throughout the 1840s. This is when Marr himself would have been in his early to mid-20s. But the long and short of it was that the Young Irelanders were a progressive group who believed that Ireland should govern itself as a sovereign state. So, as I mentioned before, it doesn't seem too radical, but at the time, Ireland was under the rule of Britain which kind of, again, solidified why something like the Irish Brigade existed, to kind of remind Britain that, should they come along in the conflict with the side of the Confederacy, there could be ramifications, because the Union clearly supported the immigrants and the Irish a bit more than the Confederacy did. But again, the idea that Ireland could govern itself shouldn't seem too radical. That's kind of what we know now. But again, at the time, they were under the rule of Britain, and they wouldn't actually achieve independence for another seven or so decades after the young Irelanders had their time in the sun, if you will. So let's fast forward at any rate to 1848. Ireland is in the clutches of the Great Potato Famine. This was an absolutely harrowing event in Irish history. In fact, if you were to look at Ireland's population, it peaked before the potato famine, and it has never reached what it was before the potato famine. So that incident in the middle of the 19th century not only changed the trajectory of Ireland forever, but also the United States forever as well, as most of the people who fled Ireland looking for, honestly, food ended up on the shores of the United States. But feeling that the Britain response to the famine, because again, they were not a sovereign state at this time, was slow and too late to stop such dramatic Irish suffering and hardship, the group, the Young Irelanders, kind of said, to hell with this. So Marr and the Young Irelanders gathered and ended up in a short firefight with Irish constables and police in Ballingari, in County Tipperary on July 29th, 1848. So Marr was with the rebels, who were quickly quelled in a scrape sometimes cleverly known as the Battle of Widow McCormick's Cabbage Patch. Now, I will say <laughs> this is a testament to the fact that we all got to start somewhere, right? For a guy like Thomas Francis Marr, who would fight in some of the largest battles in North American history, perhaps even the Western Hemisphere, you got to start somewhere, right? So for a guy that would go on to fight in battles such as Bull Run, Antietam, Gettysburg, Chancellorsville, Fredericksburg, well, I guess you got to have your Battle of Widow McCormick's Cabbage Patch before all of these begin. But 
even though the battle itself was, let's call it a skirmish, was short, these guys were in a lot of trouble, especially Mar and those leading the charge. So Mar was arrested, charged with sedition, and sentenced to death by being hanged, drawn, and quartered. Now, I think we can all wrap our heads around what being hanged means. However, if you're otherwise unaware of what drawn and quartered means, I won't share it on the show, but you can find out on Google in a hurry. But just know that it was not just incredibly painful, but it was also conducted very publicly. But due to public outcry, clemency was actually granted to Mar and the ringleaders of the rebellion. And they were only, and I'm using my air quotes here, no one can see it, but they were only exiled to Australia. <laughs> but somehow Mar escaped and he managed to find his way to New York City, which is, you know, only about 10,000 or so miles away. Consult your globe just to figure out how improbable this journey was. But he was brave and he was also a dandy. Uh, he actually swung a saber that was made by the Tiffany Company in battle. And boy, was he Irish absolutely through and through. So anyways, here we are now. In 1862, the war has entered its second year. Back to Father Corby, actually. He was acclimating to his new surroundings. Uh, until he joined the Irish Brigade, he had never been out east before. So really, he'd been to Michigan, where he was from, and Indiana, where he went to school and worked. So this was a completely new experience for even someone who had proved to be kind of a worldly guy, like Father William Corby. But on March 5th, 1862, the brigade was ordered to strike their tents and march. They then participated in what was called the Peninsula Campaign, which was called as such because Union General George McClellan opted to use the Virginia Peninsula as means to reaching Richmond, Virginia, which was the capital of the Confederacy. So rather than coming from the north, they'd be coming in from the east. Initially, speaking kind of generally here, the plan worked well. The Union Army actually advanced to the point where they were only single-digit miles away from Richmond. Again, this was in the summer of 1862. And the Irish Brigade reached the battlefield on June 1st, 1862, and participated in the Battle of Fair Oaks, which, like most of the major battles of the Peninsula Campaign, was a really bloody affair. However, it was at Fair Oaks, or Seven Pines, if you will, that the Irish Brigade kind of earned their stripes, so to speak. Their commanding general, Edwin Sumner, sensing the battle at the time was turning against the Union Army, approached the Sons of Aaron and, according to Marr's memoirs, said, quote, We saw General Sumner ride up to the Irish Brigade, but a bare quarter of a mile off on our right front. We learned afterwards that he had told them that we were his last hope, and that if we failed him, all was lost. But, he said, I'll go my stars on you, pointing to his shoulder straps. He said, quote, I want to see how Irishmen fight, and when you run, I'll run too, end quote. So the Irish Brigade led a fierce bayonet charge, and though the result of the battle was a stalemate, 
the Irish Brigade had stemmed the tide. Though General Sumner would die the following summer in 1863 due to illness, he regarded the Irish Brigade as among his finest troops. This came at a cost, though. During the Peninsula Campaign, the Irish Brigade lost nearly 500 men. So the brigade did recoup a bit over the summer of 1862, but they would be on the move soon enough to stop Confederate General Robert E. Lee's invasion of the North in September of 1862. The brigade saw action at the Battle of Antietam on September 17th in Sharpsburg, Maryland. And as it pertains to American warfare, Antietam stands out as the single day battle with the highest amount of casualties across the annals of American history. More Americans counting the Confederates in this toll, and I say that because no, technically they weren't Americans at this time, which actually kind of creates a bit of a disturbance in the grid of how these things are calculated, but more Americans and Confederates, I should say, died on September 17th, 1862 than any other day during wartime in American history. One single day, the fight saw almost 23,000 casualties. So the fight was a veritable bloodbath throughout, but some of the most intense fighting took part at the center of the Confederate line, where the rebels took cover in a sunken road, which was a perfect natural battlefield fortification, by the way. Should you visit Antietam today, you can stand in the very sunken road. But as it were, the Irish Brigade led a frontal assault on this part of the Confederate position, a section of the battlefield which would become known soon as Bloody Lane. Now, the Irishmen cried as they traditionally would, Fogabala, as they ran into battle, which means clear the way. The rebel yell became very popular in, during the Civil War and after the Civil War and kind of how we remember the Civil War. But the Irish Brigade had a cry of their own. Again, Fogabala, clear the way. As they were readying themselves for the fight, one they knew that many of the lads wouldn't return from, Father Corby rode alongside General Moore on horseback. He gave encouragement to the men and also gave them general absolution or an absolving the men of their sins. And as I'll say here in a moment in a different fight, but I imagine for this particular brigade and how it was composed, the composition of it, if you will, it was likely very comforting for many of the men to have a priest nearby mere moments before vaulting headlong into the fight. Antietam was an absolute bloodbath, and to have Father Corby riding alongside the really popular General Marr, Father Corby had his right hand up, giving general absolution to the men. I imagine that was quite a sight, but according to the sources, uh, some sources I was able to find, I should say, of the 1,200 men the Irish Brigade entered Antietam with, 540 became casualties. Father Corby himself said that the battlefield, quote, presented a sickening sight the day after the battle on September 18th, but the brigade did its duty as a military body, end quote. And he was right. Though the battle itself was a bit of a stalemate, the Union did claim victory, though. The Irish Brigade's contributions were acknowledged even by 
Union Commander General George McClellan, who was replaced not too terribly long after this fight, but he did say that, quote, the Irish Brigade sustained its well-earned reputation, end quote, after the Battle of Antietam. Now, if you've watched the HBO series Band of Brothers, and if you haven't, boy, do I recommend it. <laughs> you may remember the episodes, though, where replacements come into Easy Company to help replenish the ranks, especially after a couple of the bigger fights they are involved in. Now, the same happened with the Irish Brigade, particularly after suffering another 600 or so casualties at the Battle of Fredericksburg in December of 1862. This is just after suffering well, over 500 in September at Antietam. It didn't seem to matter the circumstances of the battle. Corby and the Irish Brigade seemed destined to find themselves where the fighting was the hottest. Now, fast forwarding to the summer of 1863. Now, we're jumping around now, but Lee's Confederate Army is once again invading the north, reaching the small town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I think some of you may know where the story goes from here, but... Here is a bit of an overview. After the Union Army was routed on the first day of battle, July 1st, 1863, they dug in and really absorbed some vicious flanking attacks from the Confederates on both the left and the right on the second day of the fight, July 2nd, 1863. The Irish Brigade were on the Union left and were summoned to throw a counterattack right into the teeth of the Confederate advance to stop the rebels from outflanking the entire Union Army. For those Gettysburg or Civil War enthusiasts, we know this because it was something still known today as, quote, Sickles Folly. Won't get into that, but feel free if, you wanna, if you're curious as to why the Irish Brigade had to react in this sort of way. It was because of this Sickles Folly. But at any rate, the brigade was once again being thrown into right where the fighting was the most critical and contentious. Knowing that, once again, many of the lads didn't have much time left on earth. Father Corby once again delivered a memorable act of inspiration. He stood atop a large boulder and raised his right hand in blessing over the troops, offering absolution to those who sought it. The iconic gesture would later become known as the Irish Brigade Absolution and would live on and become a symbol of the brigade's resilience in the face of adversity. Father Corby was at this time truly a symbol of devotion, courage, and faith, and one has to believe that it may have given the Irish Brigade the lift it needed to once again be successful on the field of battle. As they yelled Fagabala, Fagabala, and stormed across the area of the battlefield known as the Wheat Field, they drove the Confederates back. The contributions of the Irish Brigade were some of many, though, that saved the Union Army that day. But as for the boulder that Father Corby stood on that fateful day, well, it has been surmised that the statue of Father Corby on the Gettysburg battlefield was perched on that very spot that he used to give absolution to the boys. The Irish Brigade made it to the end of the war, and they had served in nearly every major fight in the Eastern Theater. But in all, 7,715 men served in the brigade. Nearly a thousand 
or 12.5%, were killed. And another 3,000, or 39%, were wounded. The over 50% casualty rate was among the highest of any single brigade in the entire war. Soon after the war ended in April of 1865, Father Corby returned to Notre Dame, and he assumed the role of vice president of the college. Just one year later, in 1866, he was named just the third president of the University of Notre Dame. In his first term, he served from 1866 through 1872, but he would also serve again from 1877 through 1881 marking about a decade or so in the top office at the school. And it was during his second tenure that the main building burned to the ground in 1879. But he and Father Soren at that promised the student body as well as the many supporters that they would build a bigger and better Notre Dame, even after the largest and trademark structure on campus had nearly burned to the ground. And you know what? They did. Just later that year, 1879, the main building, the one we now know as the Golden Dome, was finished. And this was under the watch and tutelage of Father William Corby, who was the sitting president. Now, Father William Corby would die on Notre Dame's campus in 1897 on December 28th, and he is still buried on campus. He was just 64 years old. And his memoirs of the Civil War would actually become a national bestseller. If you go to the Snyte Museum of Art on Notre Dame's campus, you can see that very famous painting of Father Corby giving general absolution to the Irish Brigade before they vault into battle on the second day at Gettysburg. If you watch the movie Gettysburg, you can actually see this scene as well. They actually pay a few seconds in the movie to just that Father Corby giving. General absolution to the Irish Brigade. So this is something that has actually become a bit of a staple, if you will, in the study of the Civil War, Notre Dame, and even sometimes popular culture. Now, some of you might be thinking, what about General Marr? Well, General Marr actually died in 1867, July of 1867, just a couple of years after the Civil War had ended. Mysteriously, General Marr had fallen overboard while riding on a steamboat in the Missouri River. So his disappearance and death still remains a bit of a mystery to this day. Regardless, the scene that is depicted in front of Corby Hall, Fair Catch Corby, I know it's become a bit of a tradition to kind of consider it just one of those many things that you like to see on a football Saturday, and we've even kind of lumped it into football lore from time to time, I should say. But Let's not forget the crucial role that Father Corby played in the University of Notre Dame's early formative years, and also the war efforts for the Union Army, as well as the Irish diaspora to the United States. And I'll be right back with show wrap. Well, you know, it's an important day on the show here in the studios of Onward to Victory if Civil War music is being busted out. So hopefully you enjoyed that summation of the contributions of Father William Corby to the Irish Brigade, ergo also the contributions of the Irish Brigade to the Union war efforts 
I'd like to once more thank you for listening. Uh, here heading into year five, there's some very special things planned for the fifth anniversary of the show, so always be on the lookout. It's pretty crazy to believe that as I'm recording this, and we're less than three days from it being November. Uh, you know what they say, the days are long, but the years are short. I feel like 2023 is a prime example of that. But I'd like to just once again extend my heartfelt gratitude to you for supporting Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. I'd like to thank WCScreens.com, West Coast Screen Printing and Embroider for their unwavering support, as well as those consensus All-Americans. If you'd like to leave something in the virtual tip jar, the virtual collection basket, however you'd like to think of it, don't hesitate to head over to paypal.me slash onward to victory or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast or Facebook page stays active. Head over there to get all the latest show updates or just like and subscribe to the show wherever you get your favorite podcast. You will always be let, uh, made aware of the latest show offering. Thanks again to Joseph Rakish, whose song Knut Rockney serves very tidily as the show's theme song. Be on the lookout. Got a couple really exciting episodes coming your way. But for now, I better sign off. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish. Irish.